2: Hello, I'm John Henley, and this is Brexit Means, the podcast trying ceaselessly to make some kind of sense of something we all know makes very little sense indeed since approximately 1784, or at least that's what it's starting to feel like. Anyway, in this episode, European election meltdown looms for Britain's two biggest political parties. Nigel attains Nirvana. What on earth does Theresa do next? Or, to be strictly accurate, will she be around long enough to decide? And, of course, what the hell are Labour playing at, part 2421? Also, what do the EU27 make of it all now that Brexit has effectively and definitively descended into a very British farce? And can we all maintain our sanity? All this and more over the next 40 minutes. Can't wait. So, a quick rundown on what's happened since we last met. The Tories and Labour, the former still officially backing Brexit and the latter still not really quite sure, did really very badly in local elections, while the Lib Dems and the Greens, both explicitly pro-Remain, did very well. Polls predict that pattern will repeat itself in the European parliamentary elections on May the 23rd and 26th, which the UK is obliged to hold because it hasn't managed to sort Brexit out in time to avoid them. Except that this time, Nigel Farage's month-old Brexit party, which didn't take part in the local vote, looks set to sweep all before it. It's currently heading for 34%. That's more than Labour and the Lib Dems combined and much more than Labour and the Tories combined. That's because the Conservatives are on course to finish in fifth place, behind the Brexit party, behind Labour, the Lib Dems and yes, even the Greens. Meanwhile, Brexit talks between the government and Labour have been going nowhere fast, mainly because any concessions the Prime Minister makes to Labour on, for example, a customs agreement or a second confirmatory public vote, may win May some MPs from Her Majesty's opposition, but it will almost certainly lose her at least as many on her own Conservative benches. And senior Cabinet Ministers are now reportedly pushing her to drop them altogether. There's still some vague talk of the PM trying to bring her thrice-defeated Brexit deal back to Parliament before the European election and rumours that she could try for another series of indicative votes in a last-ditch attempt to forge some kind of consensus in Westminster. But she's also now under increasingly heavy pressure from her own party to step down sooner rather than later and certainly many observers don't see how she can survive long after those forecast catastrophic election results next week. In Brussels, finally, Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, reckons the chances of Brexit not happening at all could now be as high as 30%. So... Where does Britain's noble effort to free itself from the shackles of a dying block and skip joyously towards the sunlit uplands go from here? With me to ponder that vital question are in the studio Simon Usherwood of the academic think tank UK in a changing Europe and Sonia Soda, chief leader writer on The Observer and deputy opinion editor at The Guardian and on the line from Brussels, as ever, Guardian correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining us. Let's start with those local and European elections in the UK, shall we, Simon? Um, I mean, it certainly looks like the Conservatives and Labour are really being hammered for their dithering and delay and confusion on Brexit, and parties that are unambiguously for Remain, or at least for a second vote, are being rewarded. Is it really that simple?
0: That's how those parties are going to portray it as being. But I I think the the picture is always uh, more complex than that. And clearly these are local elections. And as much as we know a lot of voters vote on national politics, local issues do matter. And we see that with a a rise, not just in parties that have positions on Brexit, but also on uh, local issues. So I, I live in Guildford. There you've seen the council move to no overall control. Largely because of the collapse of the the conservative vote, but going not just to Lib Dems, but also to a local residents group who have no views whatsoever about (laughs) Brexit. If you can imagine that such people exist, so there is a different dynamic, and we're seeing that in the contrast between the local elections and what we're going to see with these European elections, which I think are going to give a quite different kind of pattern. Okay, what kind of what sort of way? Well, I think there in these European elections, we're going to see much more about people's views about Brexit, which again is ironic because MEPs don't really have a role in the Brexit process. We know the European Parliament will have to approve a withdrawal agreement but that really is a secondary concern to what is the UK going to do uh, one way or the other. So people aren't voting on uh, what these MEPs actually might do in terms of a direct effect. Mm -hmm. It's more about how those parties might then shape what happens here in the UK uh, and where we might go from there.
2: Okay, Um, Sonia, on the European elections, I mean, the polls are now showing that something like 60% of Conservative voters are ready to vote for for Farage's Brexit party, which obviously wants a no-deal Brexit. I uh, I mean, it's understandable they would do that, I suppose. Um, But it also looks like large numbers of Labour voters could abandon Jeremy Corbyn's party most of them for an alternative that explicitly backs remain or at least a, a, a second vote um, would, I mean has the time not come for labor to really come clean and and say where it finally stands on brexit
3: um I think it has absolutely and I think it has for two reasons first of all I think it's sort of strategy of constructive ambiguity where it doesn't re- it sort of sits on mm-hmm. the fence sits in the middle of the road um, you know it doesn't really sort of it tries to fudge its position um, I, I just don't think that that's sustainable sustainable. Sustainable anymore. I think voters really want to know uh, what Labour stands for on Brexit. I mean, it's the most important question facing the country, arguably, for Mm. decades. Um, And our main opposition party seems to basically still be maintaining its fudge position. I also think it's right that the party says what it stands for because, you know, voters have a right to know. They're going in and voting on Mm. these elections. It's not really good enough to have a position that says, you know, we're in favour of a, a Labour negotiated Brexit which isn't really on the table and if not then we're in favour of a general election which Labour doesn't really have the votes to trigger in Parliament and then if not maybe we'll consider a, a you know a confirmatory mm. referendum it's very hard for voters to know well what exactly what does I that do? mean yeah. yeah exactly so it, it absolutely is, is right for Labour to come clean there's a couple of things holding it back um, one is that uh, you know it's it's sort of fudge strategy probably isn't that sustainable anymore with voters, but then in picking whether it is a Remain and Reform party and in favour of a confirmatory referendum or a sort of soft Brexit party, um, it's going to lose votes Mm. either way. So it probably, I think it will lose more votes, and this is what the polling suggests, it suggests that it will lose more votes if it's seen as a Brexit party than a Remain and Reform Mm. party. But, you know, it's going to lose some votes either way, so the party clearly doesn't want to do that, so people are holding off that. And then the second reason Labour really hasn't come clear is because the shadow cabinet is utterly divided. I mean, it's a split as the Tories. So you've got, you know, shadow cabinet members like Tom Watson, Emily Thornbury, Keir Starmer, who are very clearly supportive of mm. a confirmatory referendum now. And you've had, no- you know, they make noises in the last couple of days, really significant interventions essentially saying, you know, there just aren't the Labour MPs who would back, mm. um, you know, a withdrawal agreement unless there was a confirmatory referendum attached. But then on the other side, you know, you've got people who, like John Trickett, for example, who are much more hardline and you know a confirmation referendum is the last thing they want to see so um, this is this is why labor have continued with this fudge strategy and it's it's kind of hard to see how it resolves itself because of that shadow cabinet split.
2: Mm. Simon just just before we move on one one last word on those polls. Um, are they not kind of showing the European election polls, at least they're not basically showing that, you know, the problem of the two main parties, and we'll talk more about this later, but the two main UK parties is essentially that, you know, if you're if you're a Leave voter, you can't really vote for the Conservatives anymore because they're not delivering it. And if you're a main voter, you can't really vote for Labour because, you know, Labour doesn't know where it stands either. And, and, and so you're forced to the extremes.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the unsatisfactory nature of both parties' policies does clearly push away voters. And you know we know that people identify more with a leave versus a remain identity mm. as opposed to a party political identity, that the, the identification is much stronger these days. So that does tend to get people to think more in those kind of terms. But what's interesting is that you've got that fracture on both sides of the Leave and the Remain debate with parties that do have clear positions that don't necessarily benefit very strongly. And I think you see that more on the Remain side where you've got three Mm. distinct parties that have got an offer that is pretty much the same. And yet they can't quite bring themselves together. And I think this is maybe the problem that the European elections are... Important as a, a signal, but there's a signal for what comes next in British politics. And we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk about we'll talk that about now. About that is, this, exactly. is this the, the, exactly. a new era? That's
2: really interesting. Thanks. Um, Jennifer. Now, at the last European Council in Brussels, when the EU27 granted Britain a further Brexit extension, obviously, till October the 31st, Donald Tusk really went out of his way to say, to urge Britain, implore Britain not to waste any more time in getting on with the process. Now, how do Brussels and the other capitals view the, what you can only call as a complete lack of progress uh, on Brexit in London? Or, or have they got more important things to worry about?
1: I think the overwhelming feeling, both from the EU institutions and from the EU 27 member states, is just relief that they don't have to talk about Brexit anymore—at <laughs> least not for a few weeks and months. And we, last week, we really saw that um, at an EU summit. I was in Sibiu, in this very picturesque Transylvanian mm. city, where EU leaders gathered for uh, for a special summit. So it was a summit without Theresa May that had actually been called back in 2017. And the idea was to relaunch the EU after Brexit. Of course, Brexit hasn't happened yet. But uh, but the EU still went ahead with that summit. And they very much wanted to show that the EU is united, the EU is moving forward without the UK. So we had this elaborate sort of declaration, the t- or 10 points of uh, of unity, which you could see as like the EU's new 10 commandments. And Brexit was really the subject that nobody wanted to talk about. It was very sort of obvious in the press conference at the end mm. that there were no no British journalists were asked to or called to, to ask questions. So despite the fact some of us were sitting in the front row and very keen to do so. <laughs> and then we caught Donald Tusk at the end of the, the press conference and said, so did you discuss Brexit then? And he said, no, oof, no. And he gave it a little smile. <laughs> <laughs> and he's started sort of walking very quickly to the exit. And, and he was also asked, so do you think the UK is making good use of, of the time, mm. you know, based on what he'd said a few yes. weeks earlier? And he just, he smiled a bit and he said, it's a very good question. So I don't think we can read too much into that. But I, I think it's very early days and the EU will be reserving judgment. I think there's a lot of scepticism about the cross-party talks and about mm. seeing any results from them anytime soon. But I think for now, the EU are, are sort of happy to sit back, not get too involved in, in the details, mm. but just wait and see what happens. And and they really do hope that there will be an outcome from this. They would like Labour and the, and the Conservatives to get a deal that would mean the UK could leave on time at the end of October. But I think there's scepticism about that about that yeah. date. But really EU attention now now turning to other other questions. The EU's own big transition year, which I, I think we'll we'll talk mm. about soon. But um it's it's a there's a lot going on in the EU with the elections coming up at the end of this month, beginning to talk about who will take over from Jean-Claude Juncker at the Commission and from Donald Tusk mm. at the Council. So these are the kind of things that are actually really dominating people's preoccupying attention, the EU rather than Yeah,
2: right. So well, Simon, Jennifer mentioned obviously those cross-party talks underway for a good few weeks now, trying to reach some kind of consensus with with Labour uh, that might get a majority in the House of Commons. Now. You know, I mean, if the Conservatives are going to reject any kind of plan for a customs arrangement, which is apparently what they're saying, and Labour won't go for a deal that doesn't have a customs arrangement, why is Theresa May persisting?
0: It's a very good question. (laughs) It's it's been the the very perplexing thing about these talks from the off. You know, we're, what, five weeks, six Mm. weeks into these, and... It's not as if the issues aren't very clear. It's not as if everyone's preferences and uh, red lines aren't very clear. And yet we, we carry on dragging this out. Now, I think that the reason for persisting is that everyone wants to show that they've tried their hardest <laughs> and that sadly the other lot, you know, put the kibosh on it. So <laughs> yeah. I think this is really it's essentially a, a, a covering of backsides. Sure. Yeah. 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 And it's 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 there to show that, you know, we, we're we trying hard in the national interest imagine air quotes for that Uh, but no there's no real expectation that this can produce a, a consensus. The problem, I think, is also it, it shows the disconnection between leaderships in both parties and the backbenches. Mm. that what might work for the leaders isn't going to work for the backbenches, uh, and that cuts uh, yeah. uh, both ways for both parties. Sonia,
2: you nodding in agreement there. And, and also this question, I mean, you touched on it earlier, but, I mean, are we right to sort of see two main obstacles, one being the customs agreement and the other being uh, this idea of a, of a confirmatory Referendum or 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 a second vote. It, essentially, the problem being that you know that 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 the as much as Theresa May gives in order to win votes from, from Labour mm. um, she's going to lose them uh, yeah. from the Conservatives. Uh,
3: I mean that's absolutely right and I think you just won't get Labour MPs supporting this I mean th- there's no way that Jeremy Corbyn's going to strike a deal with Theresa May I think if he's got any political savvy whatsoever because mm. first of all Jeremy Corbyn won't be able to there's nothing binding about any offers that Theresa May makes Labour on the withdrawal mm. agreement and you know everything about the future relationship you know that's the music of the political declaration it's yeah. not Legally binding. We all know Theresa May's not going to stick around. We all know Brexit uh, Tory leadership candidates like Boris Johnson. They've actually said explicitly now they're not going to be held to any deal that Theresa May strikes with Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> so I mean, it's not worth the paper it's written on. So you know, you're not going to. And then Jeremy Corbyn, if you were to strike a deal, and it were to go through Parliament, and then you don't get Labour MPs backing mm. in sufficient numbers, which is extremely likely to happen, then it sort of looks a like you know La- his Labour authority. MPs exactly. Mm. So there's there's no way Jeremy Corbyn's going to strike a deal on this, I think. The only way you could potentially see numbers come through from some sort of compromise would be if you took Theresa May's deal as it stands and you attach a confirmatory vote to it, you could see potentially maybe you could Mm. build numbers in Parliament that if you maintain support of sufficient numbers of Conservative MPs who've already voted for Theresa May's deal and then bring a whole bunch Bunch. of Labour MPs on board. But it's quite difficult because a confirmatory referendum might put sufficient numbers of of Tories off. And also, we know Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really want a referendum. Loads of his MPs want one. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want one. So it's... You know, I think the chances of some sort of deal going through, whether that's Theresa May's deal, whether it's some sort of soft Brexit deal, whether it's Theresa May's deal with a confirmatory referendum attached, is just very, very hard to see it happening, which does really beg the question, what on earth is going to happen? happen
2: next? Absolutely. Well, that preso- oddly enough, we're going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> Jennifer, um, just let, I mean, you know, from, from what Simon and Sonia were saying, it really sounds unlikely, but let's just assume... For the sake of argument, for a second, that some kind of agreement is reached at Westminster. Now, Theresa May has said she would then go back to the EU and seek changes to the political declaration, although not the withdrawal agreement itself. Now, I mean, the EU would presumably be more than happy to go along with that, I imagine.
1: Yes, very very much so. And, and, and Michel Barnier the, has said several times that that's a a relatively easy thing to do. Um, And EU officials say, you know, it could be done in in hours, in a few days. We're not even talking about the work of, of weeks here. This is something that the EU sees as relatively straightforward. But the sort of technical aspects of rewriting the political mm. declaration are one thing, but what they see is the big political hurdle that they just don't see a consensus for a, for a customs union in the UK. I mean, even though the Ken Clark proposal came very close to winning support in, in the House of Commons a few weeks ago, it, it didn't uh, get that support. And I think there's scepticism that uh, it will any time soon. So the onus and the, the question is really on the UK side, and it, for the EU it's something that would be you know relatively... Straightforward to do,
2: Mm. right, Simon? Where so? I mean, where where does the deal go from here? The Theresa May's deal. I mean, is it? can we safely say it's it's dead in the water? There's some talk of indicative votes maybe after the European elections. Would that, I mean, that hasn't worked before. Might it work now?
0: Well, everyone loves a good indicative vote, don't <laughs> they? Uh, so, no, I, I, there's no reason to think that anything has changed. You know, it's, it's, a, it's Theresa May's line. Nothing has changed and that's the problem. Uh, I think the, the difficulty is here that it's clear that there is not a majority in support of Theresa May's deal but there is even less support for leaving with no deal and, Parliament blocks itself into this uh, this impasse because it, it rejects options and then has no options left because it also doesn't have a majority for remaining. Mm. And so those are the three options. Mm. Leave with a deal, leave without a deal, don't leave. Mm. And you have literally nothing else you can do apart from ask for some more time. And I think the the danger now in the system is that because we've had two extensions Mm. to Article 50 to take us out to October uh, at the longest, is that, well, we can always have some more time. And I think, you know, as Jennifer could say, and Sonia Mm. too, you know, at some point, somebody's going to say, enough. You know, we can't keep on giving more time just for... Going around the same options and saying the same things time and again. That this actually something, does need something, something needs, does need to change. Uh, yeah. And the problem is, what can change? And this is, I think, maybe where we come mm. into questions about a general election. But who? The people who, who want it. The, yeah. the, the, the people, the people who would most obviously benefit from a general election are the people who are least able to get it, and exactly. the people who are most likely to suffer from it. The Conservatives are the ones who are least likely, for exactly that reason, to, to call, to it. call yeah. it. So yeah. y- either we hang around until uh May twenty twenty two for the end of the parliament. <laughs> what a thought! Eh? Oh, God help Still help. having the same conversation in two and, years. And time. I think that's, but that's the question: is you know, do you end up? Yeah, accidentally getting to that, or do you try and hurry the system along? The, and, of course, the problem with the general election is, as we know from previous general elections, is they don't turn out the way you think they will. Works, so there's, yeah. no, there's no guarantee at all it in a general result election that it results. Yeah. You may end up with exactly the same, well, problem, but mm. with a different set of actors. You know, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn with a minority government yeah. uh, or a coalition or just some other problem. And yeah. still, you'd any new government still has those three yeah. choices. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, precise, I mean,
2: Sonia, again... you you were nodding along. I mean, Theresa May is due to meet the 1922 Committee of Conservative MPs again this week. And there's a lot of people now reporting that they they may have a majority in favour of changing the party rules to get rid of her basically ASAP. I mean, realistically, firstly, how much longer do you think she actually does have now? And equally importantly, I guess, which is really what Simon was saying. I mean, why do the Conservatives think a new leader would make anything change anyway?
3: Sure. So in terms of how long she's got left, it's. Not, I don't think it's long now, actually. And I think, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about why people are in these talks and why they're around mm. the table, part of the strategy for Theresa May is just to keep clinging on that little mm. bit longer. And so at the moment, she's saying to her backbenchers, you need to give me a bit more time. I'm in these talks with Labour. We could see some movement here. So that's kind of very, very much her line. Um, but she probably doesn't have long left. And, I mean, there is this question of uh, the practicalities. So, you know, her backbenchers, the 1922 committee, they've already had one go at at trying to Mm. sort of knock off the top spot and they don't get another formal attempt until December. But they may try and change the rules. She may also decide to go because of the pressure on her. Um, she's been very, very much of a stayer up to now, so it's quite hard to see that happening. But there is some talk. For example, she's going to be facing an extraordinary convention of Conservative Party members in mid-June, where they will say to her they want her to go. Yeah. And you know, there's some talk about maybe maybe that will just be the moment where she decides it's all too much, that's too much humiliation, and she will um, go. But it, it really feels like nothing's moving and the pressure on her will build. So it does feel that kind of at some point over the summer, we may well see her go with the idea of having a Tory leadership Mm. election essentially in time to put a new prime minister in place. Uh, for October for Tory party conference will it change anything um, no unless I mean the only way I could see it sort of changing something so you know I think it's very very likely that the next Tory prime minister because they're elected by Conservative party mm. members from uh, you know the top two lists that MPs put forward very very likely it's going to be a strong Brexit here so we're talking about someone like you know Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab, someone of that ilk mm. um, and so the only way I could see it sort of potentially providing a way out of an, the impasse and it's not a great one from my perspective obviously (laughs) would be you know those people are much more gung-ho about a no deal so if we get to october and nothing's changed in terms of parliament backing a constructive solution first of all there becomes a question of you know we know Theresa may didn't really want no deal even though she was threatening it if there is a tory prime minister who's much more gung-ho about no deal will parliament take the firm action it needs to properly block no deal even if it sort of passes something that mandates for example you know a Prime Minister Johnson or Mm. Raab to go and ask for another extension they might not necessarily do it I mean that would plunge us into constitutional crisis so with a very Brexity Prime Minister that dynamic between Parliament could change and then the other thing would be well if you've got a gung-ho Prime Minister like Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab and we get to the point with Europe where they're saying right no more Mm. you're crashing out I don't think October is that point I think we probably would get I mean it'd be interesting to know what Jennifer yes, exactly. thinks, I suspect, you know, I, that the EU doesn't want to be seen to be sort of kicking out a country, you know, against its will who hasn't clearly hasn't got its act together but, so I suspect October isn't that point, but again you could see how that having someone like the, Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab in post then, as opposed to Theresa May, would make a difference. But it certainly doesn't make a difference to parliamentary arithmetic and being able to build a coalition or, or around something constructive. get a deal exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah, OK, well, Jennifer, over to you. I mean, both um, Simon and Sonia mentioned it there. So, I mean, if Britain does need to ask for more time, will it get it, basically? I mean, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has been very firm recently in saying no further extension at all beyond the October the 31st deadline. I mean, what, what, are, what are his arguments for that? And how does the rest of the bloc feel about it?
1: Well, Macron has been for a long time the, the leader of the, the Brexit hardline club within the EU. He's always been the strictest. And he certainly shows no sign of giving up that role. And I, I think for him, it's it's very much about protecting the EU and uh, of avoiding the, the relentless distraction of being endlessly discussing Brexit. And what he wants is a European renaissance. This is his big project, mm. all sorts of policies on, on defence and, and Eurozone integration to drive the EU forward. And what he doesn't want is, is um, being sort of stuck in the dark ages of, of Brexit and and still having negotiations with the UK. But well, interestingly, what we did see at the last Brexit summit in April in Brussels was that he actually alienated, I think, or certainly mm. irritated a lot of other heads of state and government, and they thought his his approach was was much too um, not you know not pragmatic in- enough and yeah. uh, not really thinking of things through from a, from a strategic point of view and he really annoyed other EU leaders by by taking this very hard line position and and I think as, as Sonia it was absolutely right to say that the EU didn't want to force the UK out and and I think that line would probably prevail again in in late October I think there are still many uh most EU member states who, who really don't want to to force the UK out if it's if it's seeking more time. But it is worth bearing in mind that things will be changing in the autumn, that uh, Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker, who who were both strong advocates of a longer Brexit Mm. extension, these men will both be on their way out by uh, by the autumn, they'll both be getting ready to stand down from their current jobs at the top of um, EU institutions and we could be looking at, uh, at new leaders coming in and quite interestingly at the at the recent summit um, Barnier uh, actually was very close to the Macron line he was arguing that the UK should, shouldn't really be allowed more time which many people see as a sort of way to, to gain the favour of the French president mm. and to to gain his support to be, for Barnier's own bid to become president of the European Commission which is something he's been interested in for a, a
2: for long very time. long time yeah. although
1: he's not officially a candidate something he would he would keep and does keep pointing out so i think that the dynamics could be quite messy by the autumn on the eu side and it will be a a little bit less certain exactly where different politicians will will fall but my my hunch is that still there will be enough momentum Mm. not to not to push the uk out if the uk was asking for an extension and in good faith was going to pledge to be a member state and to, and to be a, a constructive a good
3: one state, but I do yes.
1: think the french would make it difficult especially when it comes to things like the uk having a commissioner that's something that the mm. french government really doesn't want if the uk is on the way out and that's why they were so strict on this autumn deadline mm. so they didn't want the uk to be coming back to the the new european commission when it take when it's due to take office in november um uh, with a with a british commissioner
2: yeah so, okay
1: I think it's it could be it could be quite a, a complex situation by the autumn.
2: Okay, um, Simon, the, the other possible outcome that we've touched on, I suppose, is a, is a second vote, which might. Be uh, uh, You know, uh, one of the ways to break the, the deadlock. And a lot of people are starting to say, you know, we, this, this is looking like the only way out now. Uh, George Osborne the other day, uh, former chancellor, said it was really now the only serious option because, you know, the numbers in Parliament, as you said, simply aren't there for leaving with May's deal, but nor are they there for a no deal. You know, we know that Theresa May is dead set against a second referendum. We know that the Labour Party, half the Labour, or at least the Labor, half the Labour leadership is, is dead set against it. Nonetheless, is it is it a possibility?
0: It's a possibility. But again, it's the same problems <laughs> as a general election. It's is not, not necessarily a resolution of the problem with a, another vote. The first problem is how are you going to get the votes in Parliament to hold this vote? And I mm. see problems on both sides of the aisle. The second problem is What's the question that we're asking Mm. and still we haven't, you know, I think it's been a very clever move to talk about this as a confirmatory vote, even if we can't agree how to pronounce confirmatory, (laughs) uh, rather than a second referendum, because we know that the polling is much more favourable to giving the people a voice Mm. and a, and a, uh, a say in the matter. But w- what are the options? Is it, again, uh, mm. leaving with a deal, leaving mm. without the a deal? deal. Those years, do we add remaining? remaining. Mm. And again, that's a very political mm. act. And if we have more than two choices, then we are gonna have to have a method of mm. deciding how we get to a majority. Mm. And even if we get all of this to happen, we still have a question about turnouts. It's likely that we're not going to get as many people voting this time, or well, it's not certain we're going to mm. get as many people voting this time as uh, back in 2016. So you may end up with a situation where you get a vote to remain, let's right. say, but with, with the, fewer, abso- absolutely less legitimate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So again, the the question of process here, I think, is one that we tend to overlook. A lot of what is going on in Westminster is about outcomes. This is what I want to see happen, mm. and how we get there yeah. is really a problem. And it's, and it's part of the reason that uh, these new parties, like the Brexit mm. Party, have done so well, you know, mm. they're saying, "Look, these people don't care about you. They're just trying to do whatever yeah. it takes to to no. get their opinion." Mm. Uh, come into effect. So I think a referendum is always an option but still the hurdles look really very significant and the the outcome of it I think still remains very uncertain I mean, there's a the whole question about how you know for those who want to remain this is their best option but how do you convince majority of people to go for your option and again we see the, the difficulties that Remain parties are having in these European elections, uh, compared to the Brexit mm. party, uh, anyone who thinks that it's a, a cakewalk to just yeah. say now you know more, surely you don't want to leave, uh, is going to be in for a very rude awakening. Yeah.
2: Well, let's, Sonia, let's talk about the Brexit party yeah. a little bit. Um, I mean, John Crace, the Guardian's political sketch writer, produced a frankly terrifying piece this week from a brexit party meeting in Pontif. was it pontefract yeah I think? It was pontefract. Um, and farage has been you know positively sort of trumpian in his latest appearances on the on the tv mm. um is this brand of politics now here to stay in britain
3: i think so for the foreseeable future so um i mean everyone talks about well not everyone but some people think you know farage is an incredibly smart savvy political operator And there's definitely some of that. But on the other hand, um, what I would argue is that actually the populist playbook that Nigel Farage plays out of is pretty simple actually. It's not complicated Mm. politics. You basically, you know, you rally against the elites Mm. that are denying the will of the people. And you say that they're really corrupt and that you offer something different. And you pretend that there are all these simple solutions to complex problems Mm. out there. So it's really, when in the right circumstances, it's very easy to be a successful populist. And that is where Nigel Farage um, finds himself. I think he's basically been aided and abetted by the two main parties over the last five to six years, whether that's, you know, Ed Miliband's immigration mugs mm-hmm. or um, David Cameron's decision to even have this referendum mm-hmm. on a really stupid, vague question in the first place that actually, I think, really kind of birthed this type of very populist politics where you've got not just politicians like Nigel Farage, but politicians like Boris Johnson, mainstream conservative politicians back then, really misleading in a the debate they didn't have to provide a firm option they just you know you could tell people well this is fantasy and it's going to be amazing so I really think Farage has been aged and abetted over the last kind of five to six years and I think he probably is here to stay now because I think he's got a very effective betrayal narrative we know that the next I think five to six years are not going to be great politically whatever happens you know as Simons would say, there's just no good options mm. here. So yes, I mean, the Observer is very much in favour of a confirmatory referendum on the deal versus remaining in. That's something that we really want to see. That's not going to be particularly pretty, though. You know, if there were a soft Brexit deal, well, people like Farage would just say, even though he was kind of, you know, talking very positively mm. about Norway just three or four years ago, he'll be saying, that's not proper Brexit. Out. You've been yeah. sold out. Mm. And if there's a hard Brexit, and it's but it's still not quite what he wants, and, it, you know, we know that's going to be really difficult economically for the country and the gaps between London and you know other regions of the country are going to get much bigger mm. and that again is really fertile territory for a populist to come in and say you've been betrayed. Mm. The reason why this Brexit hasn't worked is because the people in government the corrupt people they haven't delivered it in the way that I would have done mm. um, and so I think unfortunately the last four or five years have really um, given birth to a sort of dynamic in our politics which means that I think Farage will be here to stay for the, the medium term and And that is just Mm. it's profoundly depressing Mm. because populist politics is not a good it's not good politics it doesn't lead to constructive solutions but it's really for me our mainstream political parties you know I think both leaderships have kind of really run scared of Nigel Farage. You know, when it comes to Europe, both the Tory party and the Labour party, they swallowed the deceit of the Leave campaign, like straight after the the referendum. Some people say they couldn't do otherwise. But both party leaders really pretended to the public that there aren't, you know, the trade-offs aren't too Mm -hmm. tough. Labour, saying... We can get, you know, a Brexit deal that delivers the exact same benefits of membership. Theresa May really not being up front with the public about the trade offs involved. They swallowed that populist brand of politics, and now we are paying the price. Mm.
2: Okay, Um, Jennifer. I mean, one place where Farage is pretty much certain to be, it looks like, is the European Parliament. Now, I mean, all all the focus in Britain on these upcoming EU elections that, you know, know, which Britain never expected to hold, but they're clearly happening all over the continent, too. Um, I mean, is Brexit beyond, you know, beyond the simple fact that that Farage and presumably a a relatively large contingent of, of Brexit party MEPs will be will be taking their seats in July? Is Brexit a factor at all in the European elections on the continent? Has it influenced the debate at all?
1: I'd say that Brexit has influenced how people feel about the EU. And we've certainly seen um, a bounce in pro-EU sentiments since the referendum in 2016, Mm. really because the British experience has been a, a cautionary tale for anyone arguing for exit, whether that's the exit of their country or exit from the Eurozone mm. and, and the Euro. So you see, for example, Marine Le Pen, she's gone awfully quiet on, on talking about Frexit and, and leaving the Eurozone. In fact, she now says that's no longer her policy. You've seen that the Sweden Democrats, the far-right uh, party, they no longer talk about Swexit. They've said, well, looking at the experience of the mm. UK, it's it's we, we need to see what happens for the first country that does try and exit before we argue for that as a policy. And you've seen in, in the EU's polling um, done by Eurobarometer that um, pro-EU sentiment is now at its highest levels since before the Eurozone crisis, since autumn 2009. You've seen more and more countries saying EU membership is a good thing, Mm. uh, where the majority of people are saying it's a good thing. Now that's now in, in 21 countries up from only 13 a few years ago. So I think across the board, we've seen a rise in pro-EU sentiment and that's largely because of Brexit but whether that really sort of carries over into the, the vote at all is is hard to say because of course people are, are voting on, on national issues yeah. Above all, and, and European referendums—oh, sorry, European elections—are traditionally a referendum, if you like, on, mm. on on a national government. On, you know, do you think the government is running the country in a in a good way or not? So often, voters use these elections as a as a way to sort of kick their government if they're if they're unhappy. Mm. And um and also t- turnout has been a problem in the past. Turnout has been falling across the um across the EU ever since the first direct elections to the European Parliament forty years ago. So, although there are hopes the turnout could increase this time around that 's not being taken for granted mm. so I think it 's possible to overstate the the, the the influence of brexit, and these are still very much twenty eight separate national elections within a within a European context, but brexit is part of that mix yeah. for for all the for all these different uh, countries
2: okay um we'll speed up a little bit because we're starting to run out of time simon i'm just interested the the new european parliament um is, is certainly going to be the one thing we are almost sure of is that it, it will be much more fragmented the main center left and center right blocks will be losing votes there's going to be an increased presence on the sort of the populist hard right mainly because of salvini's league uh, mm-hmm. meps from italy is in that sense is british politics? Simply undergoing with a sort of you know a bit of a sort of a time lapse uh, the same process of fragmentation that we've seen on the continent for for some years now.
0: There's certainly an argument that you're seeing this Dutchification as uh, as uh, some of my colleagues uh, refer to it that you get more and more parties. Uh, The constraint always in British politics is the electoral system. Mm. So for European elections, it's much more understandable because the proportional system on the regional lists does allow for much more diversity in. Westminster first past the post still is a really strong pressure towards those two big parties because that's the most efficient and effective way of doing it which is why there's so much fighting within those parties to control those parties because that's the the way to break through and you know if we think back five years ago to 2014 elections UKIP came first in those elections that was a really strong result for them a very bad one for the Conservatives and then less than a year Mm -hmm. later they came back and won a majority in Westminster so I think we have to be careful about separating what happens in European elections from what happens in In Westminster and there's not an automatic transmission and and rollover.
2: Yeah Sonia do you agree with that I mean the the latest polling's putting the Brexit party on something like 20% in a in a Westminster general election does that feel sort of remotely right? I mean
3: I think we have to treat it with some caution because it's a brand new party and they've never been tested Mm. in a general election format and so it's Hard to know whether, and you know, there have only been a few polls about general election voting intention that have included mm. the Brexit party. So it's hard to know what will come to pass. So, will voters just think, you know, I want to send a clear message? Like, this is sort of strongly voters, Brexit hasn't happened. I'm going to vote for the party that does what it says on the tin. Mm. That's conceivable, but then you may also get some voters who think strategically and think, well, if, I, if it's a close Tory Labour seat and they may be natural Conservatives themselves, uh, well, if I vote for the Brexit party, I might let the Labour candidate through. So um I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how that dynamic's gonna play out. So I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't necessarily go off the back of this. But I do think it's conceivable that the Brexit party will do you know, will do double figures, for example. Mm. I think they'll be coming off the back of a very successful European election campaign. And I think it probably will raise questions again about our electoral system. I mean, no one really likes or enjoys talking about our electoral system and whether it's fit for our times it it doesn't feel like the sort of uh, the the, the answer of sufficient Mm. scale to the sort of fragmentation of politics we see but you know whether you're talking about parties of the left or the the right if you see parties getting millions of votes in a general election and And none or very few Mm. seats that does kind of beg the question and I think our first past the post electoral system it works very well in delivering stable majoritarian government when you've got an electorate that's divided along one spectrum a left right spectrum once you start to introduce a new division that cuts across that left-right spectrum, which is essentially what we've got with Brexit and Leave Remain, the party system just doesn't work anymore. Mm. That's why you've got the two main parties split on this mm. really important issue. So at some point, I mean, you've got to start asking questions. Is our electoral system really fit for purpose with a sort of newly fragmented electorate?
2: Mm. OK, um, Jennifer, last question to you. You know, the, the, the outcome of the European elections could also, and and what kind of parliament emerges in Strasbourg and, and, and Brussels, you know, could have some kind of influence over Brexit, couldn't it? Um, you know, it's looking likely, as I said, that that parliament's going to be much more fragmented. There's going to be more populist, EU critical M- MEPs. That might mean coalitions are more difficult to build to get sort of legislation and direct new directives and uh, through. And of course, as you mentioned, there's going to be a new commission, um, and there will be British MEPs in their voting and possibly influencing outcomes that'll you know that'll last long beyond Britain le- actually leaving if it ever does. How, how important could all of that be in in the future of Brexit? I think
1: I think fairly important but I wouldn't overstate it potentially we could see perhaps 30% of the seats in the new European Parliament being taken by anti-EU populist parties but I still don't think these these MEPs would be able to stand in the way of ratifying the Brexit agreement assuming of course that uh, that it was agreed in the UK so For example, you you could see Matteo Salvini and his League Party coming back in greater numbers, Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party. But typically, these anti-EU parties, they're not always very good at uniting with each Mm. other, so they're not always very good at joining forces. And you'd still have a majority, on the current polls at least, of so-called... Quote pro unquote, eu pro-EU mm. parties the the traditional center right center left the liberals mm. the greens, and so they, they would they would be able to sort of manage the the numbers in order to, to you know to keep the brexit process running smoothly. I think the bigger impact could be on the member states could be on EU leaders. So if you're, if you're Emmanuel Macron or, or, or Angela Merkel, what lesson do you draw if there has been a big surge of, uh, for anti-EU populists in the European elections? Does that mean you, that you take a stricter line with, with the UK if they're asking for another extension? So I think potentially maybe there the impact is greater rather than in the parliament itself
2: okay excellent right well i said that was the last question but i've actually got one very quick one to all of you um as is now tradition uh next brexit means going to be a month from now mid-june um will anything have changed sonia
3: no possibly, <laughs> possibly something might happen with Theresa may um, before that um that meeting of the the extraordinary tory membership convention that i talked about mm. but no nothing apart from that will change
0: okay simon no, nothing will change. You'll have you'll have the results of the election, the European election. Uh, everyone will claim that this is a vindication of their position and why they are right and they must prevail uh, with the net result that will be where we are now. Okay. And Jennifer, you agree with that, I imagine?
1: I mean, sorry to make it all consensual, but yes, I think nothing <laughs> nothing will have changed and, and Brexit will be continuing as sort of uncertain and as, as murky of and as ever, although perhaps with a bit of a political crisis in the UK following the European elections. OK,
2: something for us all to look forward to. Well, that really is it, I'm afraid. For this time, my thanks to Sonia, Simon and Jennifer. We'll be back with a fresh dose of Brexit bedlam, as I said, in mid-June. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter, so you just need to search for Guardian podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word Brexit Podcast at The Till next time, then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Susanna Trezillian. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening.
3: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to TheGuardian.com slash
1: podcasts.